1: Today, we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz. She enjoys telling true stories of trailblazers, underdogs, and people who have not walked the beaten path. Heather is best known for Kusama Infinity, a feature-length documentary about artist Yayoi Kusama that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and received international distribution. Heather will be interviewing Liz Manachell, a filmmaker who graduated from USC Film School and makes movies with feminist content and a whimsical twist. She is the co-host of the hit podcast, Making Movies is Hard. She's also a film consultant who offers guidance on things like distribution, audience building, and micro-budgets. Heather, I am so glad that you are back to host another episode. We so much enjoyed the last one that you did, and I look forward to your your discussion with Liz about micro-budgets and how you'll be using her last film, Speed of Life, as a case study. Welcome, both of you, to the
0: show. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for the lovely introduction, and um, Liz, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I'm just thrilled you're going to share all of your expertise with us, us today. So I'd like to just start by diving into micro-budgets. Could you please um, tell us how much money are we talking about when when we refer to micro-budgets?
2: Sure. And everyone has their own definition, right? And um, quick pause to just thank you for having me on the show. You all are so so nice, <laughs> so kind already. It's only been two minutes. Um, back to body, body. <laughs> um, Everyone has their own definition of what a micro budget is. My personal one is: I look at um, SAG AFTRA has various different budget levels when they build contracts, and I'm mainly a fiction filmmaker. And what used to be the base called ultra low was two hundred and fifty k and below, and that's what I think of as a micro budget film. But if you say that in some circles, you may offend them. They might say, "Well, that's insanely high." A micro budget should be under ten thousand dollars. So um it's a controversial answer, but I say two fifty and below.
0: Wow, I, I um I'm shocked that it, it could be as low as ten thousand. Um <laughs> so um your recent movie, Speed of Life, which is now on showtime, was made on a micro budget. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about the film, what it's about, what inspired you to make it. And then also tell us um, some of the things you did to keep the budget low.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, Speed of Life. Um, I'll, I'll try to do the pitch. I've, I've forgotten it. Sure. Uh, but we'll see if I can resurrect my memory here. Uh, but the idea is that um, the film follows what happened when um, a wormhole that was created uh, due to David Bowie's death appears in a fighting couple's living room. And um, that's our weird <laughs> our weird plus. It is a sci-fi dystopian uh, romance, actually, and there's a little bit of a May-December uh, content in there. It stars Anne Dowd, Ray Santiago, Alison Tolman as actually a younger version of the Anne Dowd character, uh, Jeff Perry from Scandal, Bella LaBelle from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Mr. Mayor. Um, I wrote it uh, – I mean, there are millions of reasons why I wrote it and why I directed it and why I wanted it to be my second film. You know, it's set in 2016, when I think our world feels like there was a, a reckoning in 20, 2016. There's certainly one now. Um, but at that time, 2016 was pretty pivotal. Um, so the film was a little bit nostalgic in that sense, but, but the world kind of felt like it broke around that time. And that's the David Bowie plot line with the wormhole. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, and also um, I like to show different body types, different ages, different ethnicities. It's uh, a wide wide swath of diversity on the screen. And so I wanted to do a film with a woman over 60, um, you know, and I was just uh, very grateful that that woman got to be and out, and I've just been counting my lessons ever since.
0: Yeah, amazing. By the way, so before we go into to how you kept your budget low, was there any yeah. inspiration, uh, Logan's Run inspiration? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I actually watched Logan's Run afterwards um, uh-huh. because, you know, the, the whole plot line is about uh, essentially locking people away after the age of 60. And I chose the age of 60 because I thought it was hilarious. I don't think that 60 is old. And I think in Logan's run, it's like 30 or something. It's something like 30, even more yeah, laughable. 30. Um, and what's also kind of interesting is I read a lot of reviews. I'm obsessed with myself, clearly. Uh, and I Google reviews of my own film. And someone thought that the film was derivative of Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. And I was like, well, I've never seen that movie either. Uh, so now I just feel very, um, very unread as a filmmaker poor I'm a poorly
0: read filmmaker now now that's not true <laughs> very humble though so so what are uh if you think of maybe the top three things that you did to keep the budget low on your film what sure. what would you say that those things are?
2: You know, I talk openly about all these things. I think there's going to come a day where I, I shouldn't be talking so openly. But right now, that's like my brand. My brand of micro-budget filmmaker. And I say that as like a disclaimer because things might change. But up until now, if I've produced the content, everyone gets the same rate in terms of cast. Um, uh-huh. And a lot of people have worked for scale for me. So I would say that's part of it is that I don't believe in tearing out um, actors rates. And I try not to tear out crew rates either. I think that when you feel like you're all making, you're already making a sacrifice because you're making a low budget film together. It adds a lot of tension to the environment. If different people are getting different rates and they, who's to say what, what value a sound recorder springs versus a key grip And how can you really compare those two? So for me, we try to keep those things even, and it actually helps with stabilizing the budget as well, is um, not tearing at those rates uh, uh, avoids a certain level of inflation amongst um, pay and pay grades. So that's one. Uh, Two is I write the content and I produce the content in addition to directing. So if one of my other producers comes to me and they say, Liz, we, we can't get that streets we can't permit we don't we can't afford to permit that street or we can't afford the company move in our schedule I go okay well I'm going to rewrite the scene and it's going to be in a garden and we have access to a garden let's just use a garden so that helps keep your budget low because you good. can be creative and you have control right um, I had when you asked the question I was like okay I could talk about these two I'm um, trying to think of a third and buying time Heather, what do I say?
0: Um, Well, I I know people always talk about minimal budget. I'm I'm sorry, minimal locations. Yes. Well, that being said,
2: I have to say there is a certain level of bias against one location features because they're like transparently micro budget. And we live in a society that doesn't value people who can do a lot for very little for some reason. I don't know why like me saying I'm a micro-budget creator actually devalues my brand over and over again. But I choose Hmm. to do that because I think it's important to help educate other filmmakers about ways you can make content. Um, So I think for me it's days, limiting days, but I know the byproduct of that is burnout. So I don't advocate for it. But my first feature was 16 days, and my second feature was... 13 days. Wow,
0: that's impressive. That's interesting. And then how <laughs> about post? How how long uh, did you spend in post making these films? Well, I guess that also is related
2: to budget because the first feature, I had two editors. I had a very small budget, but I thought that at the time dividing the workload would be actually a way to manage budget and also – collaborate with more people creatively, and they were two people that I, I was very close to. Um, and But with Speed of Life specifically, I had one editor, and we probably only took two or three months. And I say that, and that's very, very unusual, and I want to acknowledge that because that was the budget I had. I only had the budget for that much of her time. Uh, right. But she did um and that was just picture editing right so she did um you know she looked at rushes (laughs) every day from set so that was added onto her timeline and then she did do temp vfx and helped out with that process a little bit so we had a very fast editorial process but we did probably about five or six focus group screenings in that time and um I was working full-time, and I was actually pregnant as well. So I would work my day shift, drive to uh, Burbank, and then spend four hours with her sitting on the floor, like because I had really bad acid reflux. <laughs> and we would edit. And it was actually kind of this – I say it as if maybe it's complaining. I don't mean to complain. I'm actually saying that it was wonderful because I got to spend my day – making a living spend my night doing what i love doing and then i'm like you know where else am i going to feel
0: productive well also
2: burping every five minutes
0: so i thought of it as well a you were scary. you were creating a life and creating a movie at the same time so that's pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. impressive <laughs> and um what what would you say are some areas where you don't suggest cutting corners um, when you're making a film on a micro budget. You know, I think we've all heard stories of filmmakers um, foregoing permits or doing things that ended up blowing up in their face. And so I wonder if you could Mm. talk about some of those things as well.
2: Yeah, I think I've come round on the days thing a little bit. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm launching this incubator with three other founders, And the whole point of this incubator is to look at the way we make movies and reevaluate it. And it's called Constellation Incubator. And we came to this, you know, the, the pandemic has been a bit of, I used the word reckoning earlier, but like an inflection point, should we be making content the way we've been making? And I think we've actually been rushing and also exploiting our our colleagues um, and a lot of the work that we make in micro budget films. So I would actually encourage people, if they can, to not restrict days, to take as many days as possible if you can and find other ways to cut the budget, cut scenes, cut characters, cut um, stunts, things like that. But if you can have more days, then you actually get to feel like you're in an artistic experience and you get to um, make a meaningful product rather than a, a rush job at times, which I think a lot of filmmaking turns out to be miraculously uh, filled with quality, but not by, you not know, through process, because we certainly rush through the process um,
0: in ways that I don't think are really effective. That makes sense. Now for documentaries, um, which is where most of my experience is, filmmakers typically seek funding through things like grants when they're getting started. But I know for fiction filmmakers, um, unlike documentary filmmakers, you typically need the whole budget as you move into production. So could you talk a little bit about where you look for money when you're getting started, where you suggest other filmmakers look for money when they're getting started to make a micro-budget movie?
2: Yeah, I'm a big advocate for crowdfunding. And I know not everyone has it in them to do a crowdfunding campaign. It's exhausting. It's intense. Uh, but I found it incredibly rewarding because I am, um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a misanthrope. And so during a crowdfunding campaign, I'm like, whoa, people are really nice. People are really generous. And I, uh, it allows me to <laughs> have a little bit more faith in humanity and their kindness, even if someone gives me a dollar. So um, that's where I start because I think when you're just starting out, you don't have a lot of work samples. You, you might not have a real – you might not even know anyone at all who would ever invest in content. You might – you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of poss- potentially at least perceived closed doors when you're starting out. So I, I highly advocate crowdfunding. And I want to acknowledge that it takes so many years to fund a film I it I you know, my film is set in twenty sixteen, speed of life. I wrote it in twenty sixteen, it came out in twenty twenty. You know, and I started writing it maybe in twenty fifteen. So that's five years. And my first feature we crowdfunded in twenty twelve and it came out in twenty fifteen. So that's three years and this you know, you're waiting you're waiting for money the majority of the time when you're making a movie. Uh, and you're filling up that time with fixing the script and casting and crewing up and things like that. But a lot of the timeline of a film is based off of fundraising.
0: Yeah, that's the truth. Um, (laughs) You guest host a podcast called Making Movies is Hard, which is a title I love, by the way. And can you talk <laughs> about the hardest part of making speed of life? I mean, maybe you've already said it's the money, but um, <laughs> maybe give us something else. If it's not the money, what, sure. what would be the next hardest part?
2: I mean, for me, I am a director who constantly questions herself on set, and I don't have a lot of confidence on set. I really understand Marketing and distribution. I really understand the festival world. Um, As a writer, I'm not the best writer, but I love dialogue. You know, there's a lot of strengths in every other area for me except for production. And it's that fear of like, am I going to say the wrong thing to an actor, and am I going to close them up, or am I going to make the wrong choice regarding a wardrobe? Like, is that dress? Am I going to regret? a character wearing that dress for the rest of my life. I have a lot of anxiety there. So for me, it's actually the uh, intellectual and emotional ramifications <laughs> of being this that I think are the hardest part.
0: Interesting. Well, You know, Liz, um,
1: make... um, this is Claire. I just thought maybe yeah. I would pop in real quick, if that's okay. Um, yeah. I, I really love what you had to say about Liz, when you, when you talk to an actor and you're concerned about saying the wrong thing, um, mm-hmm. or I, I presume you're also saying misguide them in some way, um, yeah. as someone who has done on-camera film acting, I can really appreciate uh, what you just said. Um, mm-hmm. But I also will say this. Um, I have noticed that actors are very forgiving, too. So they oh. understand that guiding emotions through a scene, because that's where it all starts from, is the emotions before the dialogue is even spoken. And they understand that this is a non-physical thing that is, you know, that is uh, worked with very delicately. And it sounds Mm -hmm. like you're very conscientious about that. And actors will know that, they'll appreciate that about you, and they'll trust you even more because of it. Oh,
2: well, that is really nice of you to say. <laughs> thank you. I still have like major nightmares over things that I said on set that probably the actors have forgotten and forgiven, and they were so minor but they just kind of shake shake you a little bit but but thank you for that claire i really I really appreciate that
0: <laughs> sure, yeah so making movies is obviously hard for a variety of reasons, especially when you're starting out and having to raise the funds yourself and work with these low budgets, which I know all too well. And um, I'm wondering what motivates you to keep doing it anyway when it is so hard.
2: Um, I don't know. I've been trying to think about, like, reexamine this in myself because I think to a degree it might be a level of masochism. I think to a degree it might be the fact that I want to like that search for immortality that we all have. Like I want to have something to my name. Um, I, I want to have a canon of films that represent, you know, my thoughts, my concerns, my creativity. But ultimately, um, I don't know. And I, re- I decided to become a director when I was 16. I saw this movie, and for some reason I couldn't tell you why, in the middle of the movie, I, like, had one of these epiphanies where I was, like, I know what I want to do. I want to be a director. And I blindly followed this gut instinct and haven't questioned it, and that's been 20 years. <laughs> and so I, I wish I could tell you why I do it. And I think it's probably because I'm, other than, like, my son and, um, and my dog, it is, like, the, the part of my life that I'm very proud of. To talk about, and there's something there that I don't have access to but um, but I have to I have to trust that, so
0: I just do well that's a great answer now I know you are just absolutely a wealth of um, knowledge and, and you advise other filmmakers and so forth, and you know a lot more um, than just micro-budgets, and I've heard you talk before, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difference between marketing and distribution.
2: Sure. Uh, So I worked at Sundance, right, and I managed this department, the Creative Distribution Initiative, and our boss used to say this thing all the time. He said, distribution is easy, marketing is hard. And the reason he said that is because you can go and you could pay an aggregator to get your film up on Apple TV. Um, You know, unless it's pornography, I think there's very few things that are barred from what we call open platforms like Apple TV. Um, You will just get in on that platform and that's distribution. But marketing is how do you get people to watch that film? And that's, um, exhausting <laughs> and unless you have A24 or neon on your side a, a lot of that could land on, your, on the filmmaker's shoulders and I say filmmaker to represent producer or director or any of the key team who's involved in the marketing of the film so uh, marketing is making people want to see the content and distribution is just putting the content on a platform
0: Makes sense. And, and like you said, trying to get eyeballs on your work it is very hard. Could you offer some suggestions for building an audience? And, and also, when do you think, when in the process do you think the filmmakers should start working to build their audience?
2: It really depends on where you are in your career. So if you are a filmmaker who hasn't made their film yet, they're just, you know, they've got one in them, they really want to do it, but they haven't made a film yet, them I say just get that film out into the world and come hell or high water just finish it and put it out and that may be messy bad advice but the point is is that I remember what it was like and Heather maybe you do too where you have an itch that you can't scratch and it actually impacts your daily life where you just feel unfulfilled so right. if you're your first time filmmaker I say just get it out um but if you're really trying to make a dent in your career you have to think about audience at the script stage, at the development stage, as early as possible. Um, because without that, you are just making a film in a vacuum. And, and, and also I would say the caveat is if you just plan on making a movie just that you will enjoy and are proud and you want to make a movie in a vacuum, that's totally okay. Uh, but I do focus groups for my screenings. I test key art. With friends, I ask people around what they think of the key art. I ask for their impressions. I test my trailer around. And other tips in audience building, because that's really more marketing, right? Other tips for audience building is um, I think the importance of a newsletter cannot be overstated, actually. Having something that you own that isn't as ephemeral as social media that you, allows you to connect directly with an audience and having that email address of your audience is really valuable. So I would highly advocate um, talking directly
0: with your audience as much as possible. Yeah, that's great advice. So particularly for new filmmakers who, who just may not be able to, to raise the funds for a feature, Could you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about the pros and cons of making a short film? Sure.
2: Um, It's funny. I'm actually making a short this summer, and that's after making two features. And the reason I'm doing it is because my features are relationship dramedies, no matter what other genre they have. They're they're mainly relationship dramedies that are dialogue-based, and I want to make a horror film. So I feel like I need to make a horror short because that's a very specific stylized genre and I need to show my audience, my investors, my team, that they can trust me when I say I want a really gory horror film, which is what I want to do. I want to make really gory body horror films. Um, So I would say, which is always like, for some reason, like delights people, Um, which I don't know why. I I think it's the way you say
0: it. It's the way you say it, Liz. (laughs)
2: Uh, and um, so I think if you're, if you're going forward in a genre that is very specific and you're looking for serious investors, having something to point to that is related to that genre or storyline is always valuable. What I always like to deter filmmakers um, doing, though, is hiding behind a short. So if you could put together a feature – and you – because you're going to spend maybe the same exact time making the feature as you do make the short. I mean, it's somewhat comparable sometimes, and that's a blanket statement, and I don't mean to be generalizing, but making a feature will um, be insanely educational and will be more beneficial to your career than a short unless you um, make a very specific type of short So you make a short to find investors, you make a short to prove your uh, level of dedication and skill, or you make a short that's quippy and smart and has name cast, and you use it to get representation, and you try to make a splash in the festival world. If you're you're making a short to do some, you know, to to be your film school, that's fine too. I feel like I'm giving, like, five
1: answers to this question, Heather, so I apologize.
0: No, that's,
1: that's great. The more the merrier.
0: I mean, I think for a while, you know, obviously we saw what happened with Quibi last year and their attempt yeah. to market shorts, which was, I think, unfortunate because um, especially in this era where people seem to be having shorter attention spans, I think there's a lot of benefits to um, short content. But um, there doesn't quite seem to be the platform yet to maybe monetize them. Um, that would no be ideal. No one's willing to
2: pay. Yeah. No one's willing to pay for short form because it's just been completely devalued by YouTube and, and, and the like for the past 15 years. Um, yeah. So I would never suggest someone make a short to make money. Yeah. but But there are other reasons. And Normally, I'm actually fairly (laughs) anti-short. I just say, you make your feature. You make your features really, you know, that could be a real big career boost, even if it's not successful. Just telling someone that you've made a feature actually changes the way they look at you. Um, But there are
0: reasons to make shorts. So uh, once a film is done um, and and, uh, you may be in a position of picking a distributor, what tips can you offer about making sure you're teaming up with the right partner? Yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean, part of it is actually um, instinctual. You know, do you like the way they talk to you? Do you have a good feeling? Do you want to hang out with this person for the next three to five years? Uh, You don't have to get married to them, but do you feel like you're on an equal playing field in terms of how you communicate? Those are some of the more emotional ways to vet a distributor. Um, Number one on the more practical strategies is go to their website, look at their slate, and cold email filmmakers that they've worked with and, you know, get a level of data and recon, (laughs) do some recon on that distributor without them necessarily vetting that recon because filmmakers will um, be very explicit about whether a distributor has jerked them around or not. Um, they may say things off the record, but they will have concerns to vent or air if they were taken advantage of. So I would say that is a big one. And then um, when you look at your contract or your, you know, whatever you're working on, I've seen actually deal points put it in email rather than test as a PDF. So whatever this distributor is sending you, look at things like term length, I'm very big on keeping your term length around five years, maybe seven if they have to be. You don't want your film to be handcuffed by a distributor. Uh, I wrote an article recently and I said something like, we didn't know in 2019 that 2020 would be the way it is, right? We didn't know that theatrical would drop off and that distributors would for low, for low staff and all these things. So how can you expect a distributor to take your content for more than three to five years. Um, the term links and then also if they're asking for rights or windows that they have no expertise or experience exploiting, like if they do not have an educational arm, but they're taking educational rights, that's another red flag. So this is what I do on a daily basis is consult and distribution and kind of help Makers find those partners, but some, those are some, like, top-line ideas.
0: And those are super helpful. Now, I know another area you have a lot of expertise in is impact producing. So I'm wondering if you could, first of all, tell us what impact producing is. <laughs> Personally, I associate impact producing more with documentaries um, that, that mm-hmm. are social issue films, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that, what it is. Um, how it helps a film and some tips, some impact producing tips. Sure. Yeah. I worked
2: at picture motion for a year and that was an impact agency and agencies. Uh, I'm going to say this, but not, I feel like I, there's going to be a blowback, but uh, picture motion or participant or these various organizations take on the work on unma- mass that an impact producer might do for a film So you have a few options when you're looking to create impact with your films. You could hire an impact producer. You could do it yourself. You could work with an agency. And um, at Picture Motion, the mantra was films can change the world. We make sure they do. And it was a lot of documentaries and some um, niche audience, mission-driven fiction films, but for the most part, it was documentaries. And what the general process is, trying to find either partners in the nonprofit space like the community organization space for your film to help with promotion and host screening. Um, And also to look for screening hosts, either individuals or at churches, colleges, universities, community centers, things like that. And impact producers usually will oversee that window of distribution um, that is, it's, it's complicated because various windows are either shrinking or overlapping these days, but it's usually around the time of your festival premiere and before you're available on something like Apple TV or Amazon Video. And it's this area where your film's not available many places, and so it's a pretty exclusive opportunity to license the film from the filmmaker, and then the impact producer might curate a panel discussion after the screening or might reach out to influencers or experts in the space and build a tour for the film. And the goal is to create some sort of impact, whether it's raise money or um, affect change related to the film. And uh, it's why, I mean, I would love to hear you talk about it, Heather, but it's why I think a lot of documentary filmmakers make their movies is to exploit this window, and to see kind of the the impacts that their films have.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I was probably woefully uneducated about impact producing with my film, which was um, my last feature, that is, which was a biographical film. And I like to say it had baked in social issues, because it dealt with things mm. like sexism, racism, mental health. But the, you know, there wasn't a sort of one sentence thing I could say about the film, like, oh, it's about uh, plastic in the ocean or something like that. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people didn't really perceive it as a social issue film until they actually mm-hmm. saw it. And then uh, a lot of the reaction I got was very positive. and And um, I mean, I had uh, people in the audience um literally come up to me, you know, in tears because after because they were just so moved and touched that I had portrayed um, uh, this strong Asian female character in a way that wasn't stereotypical. And mm. so, I mean, that's just one example. I had people come up to me who had mental health challenges really inspired and moved by um, my subject who, by the way, um, for those that don't know, Yayoi Kusama um, lives, um, it, it, she she has a history of um, some issues and she lives in a, um, a psychiatric facility um, but mm-hmm. makes her art and, and she's a top-selling living female artist. So it's a, a unusual story that she's accomplished so much, but, um, anyway, yeah, I, I could have, I, I definitely could have used your expert expertise on impact producing <laughs> no. that when it was getting released, but unfortunately I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, um, so anyway, but, um, well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you're working on next, but you have talked a little okay. bit already about your your horror film you're going to be making. And it sounds like, reading between the lines, that what you want to do is kick open the door to to potentially then make a feature horror film. And so do you already have a script in mind or an idea in mind for for a second horror film?
2: Uh so yeah, the horror short we're shooting the summer and that script is written. It sincerely needs to be polished but it is I have a first draft and it's more of a horror comedy and it has like um my husband's gonna play a character and I'm really excited to see his face melt. We're gonna have like a lot of cool prosthetics and um like really like he's gonna like ooze and there's gonna be pus. This is very, very exciting for me. Uh so that's more of a horror comedy, but I'm on a second draft of a horror feature. Um, it's tentatively entitled Friendship is Hell. It's a feminist body horror film about the perils of female friendship, and I'm co-writing that with a, actually a good friend of mine, Amy Taylor. And we are – we just hit the end of the first act of our second draft, so we're on our way.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I'm glad to hear that. And um, we've talked about how you work as a, as a consultant, and I'm wondering yeah. how people can reach out to you if they would like to work with you since you're clearly such a wealth of, you know, you have so much diverse knowledge. Very sweet. Um,
2: yeah, absolutely. I have a, a very open door policy. Uh, you can email me LizManichel at com. And, um, yeah, I have a lot of different ways I can work with filmmakers, whether it's being an accountability coach for them or it's, helping them navigate distribution or talking about ways um, to get their projects off the ground.
0: And could you spell, um, spell out your email address for us, oh, please?
2: Sure, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Liz Manichel, L-I-Z, and then you could put a period or not put a period there, thanks to Gmail. Manichel, M-A-N-A-S-H-I-L,
0: at gmail.com. Wonderful, and then we also mentioned that you have your own podcast, Making Movies is Hard. Could you tell us a little bit about where people can tune into that?
2: Yeah, so I've been on the show for the past year and a half, It's, it's but the show itself has been around for six years, and its founding host is Ulrich Bursell, and you can find Making Movies is Hard pretty much everywhere where you can find podcasts. I listen to it on iTunes or a podcast app on, on my phone, but you can find it on Stitcher, or you could go to makingmoviesishard.com, dot com, and there's a list
0: of all the platforms, and you can listen to it straight from the website. Well, terrific. I um, I just want to thank you so much for joining us <laughs> and sharing all of this information with our listeners. So um, I think you were just fantastic, and thanks again thank for thank for all of your you know information you've shared with us.
2: Yeah. Thank you to yes, you very both, much. And of course, Carol for. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for letting me be a part of this. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, yeah. All right. and, and you know, well. I have to also say, Liz, I learned a lot from you today. So, I'm very, very grateful that you you have a podcast of your own. I'm sure that uh <laughs> all of the uh experience and wisdom that you that you gain and continue to gain is going to help a lot of filmmakers. So, thank you again. Oh, thanks!
2: This is what a wonderful way to start out Wednesday. This is like couple bed city. Um, uh, please have me back so I could just use it as therapy. <laughs>
1: sure.
0: All right. Well, the All next right. time we 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 yeah, if someone cancels, we'll have to call you back. I know you could talk about a lot more. So thanks again,
1: Heather. Great job. You you do you ask wonderful questions. Thank you so much.
0: All right. All right. Well, I guess Take that's care the end. Well. Thanks, everyone.
1: <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye-bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com.